Hi, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about creativity, community, and career. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Today I'll be talking some more with Georgia Public Defender Ozzie Golshan. But first, since this is the final episode of the year 2021, instead of a book review, I'm going to do a year in review. Last year, at this time, the end of December 2020, we were in our ninth month of COVID-19 lockdown with no vaccine available, although there was hopeful news. Even more hopeful was that we were looking forward to a new president and that at that point the old one hadn't tried to stage a coup yet. The weird, disorienting thing about this year is, first of all, how close that coup was to succeeding, and how weirdly in stride we've taken it as a nation. It joined the whole on-fire, headline, disappear cycle that has become our politics and our news coverage trajectory. But 2021 saw an actual vaccine rollout, not of one, but three different companies, two different approaches, and then a surprising number of people who would literally rather die than get a shot and would literally rather kill innocent people around them than get therapy. But are they the majority? No, not at all. The percentages lay themselves out just like people do. A bunch of people dive in right away. The bulky middle go along with them, but with a lag. And then a bunch of people who absolutely won't do it. That narrative is essentially a neutral observation. It works out that way whether the first group is behaving for good or bad. But a lot of people look at a glass that's three-quarters full and smash it and condemn humanity, even when very clearly most of us have done the right thing. I've looked at this phenomenon in past episodes, but most recently in episode 066, when I looked at the power of meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters, which is by Emily Afshani Smith. I was already familiar with this great exercise to do to encourage people to see potential. Although if you're driving right now, do not practice this till you get home. I ask you to find a color, say yellow, near you, and spend two or three minutes picking out and counting how many things are yellow. That coat, that necklace, that sweater, and on and on. Now shut your eyes and tell me how many things around you were blue. Just like in The Invisible Gorilla, which I reviewed in episode 070, our brains have to do things, so many things, that it makes workarounds to do them in the most efficient way it can. So we shortcut, we diminish, and we cannot see potential unless we make the opening effort to see potential. And the color exercise doesn't cure it, but it does point out to us and reflect us how much we do not see when we tight focus in on one thing. And just as a footnote, when we tight focus in on the negatives, 
usually reflecting how negatively feel we feel about ourselves and projecting them by only looking at the negative around us. That point of view does not improve the world at all. It actually takes a bite out of ourselves. It uses our energy in a way that diminishes us. And it sets off a cascade of brain chemicals and hormones that are part of fight or flight, part of being triggered. In other words, we come out ourselves diminished. And we can, in fact, while that exercise doesn't cure it, we can work on reversing that constant taking nibbles out of ourselves by being aware of our tight focus on the negative. All of this is to say that a lot of us tight focus on seeing proof that people are terrible, that the world is getting quantitatively worse in every way. And that is looking for yellow and not seeing the blue. For example, crime has gone down in the last couple of decades globally quite substantially. That allows us to open up a discussion with each other about over-policing and unjust imprisonment in a way that was nearly impossible to do even a decade ago. We are able to talk about racism, misogyny, and the ways that our worldviews hurt each other and how hurting each other reflects a hurt in ourselves. And we have never had this kind of broad-spectrum conversation before. What's funny is we have had the negative outlook before. I can find at any given time almost word-for-word Latin and Greek complaints about kids these days and how bad the world is getting. That has to do with aging. And if your cohort, like the boomers, is enormous, it will feel like that is a fact when, in fact, it's not. It's a limited worldview of a large cohort. But we've never had broad-spectrum conversations with each other from all sorts of places before. We are sharing these stories peer-to-peer in ways and defeating distance and language in ways on social media that we did not have the capacity to do. I reviewed So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Ulo, and among other things, as a result, one thing I deliberately did was to follow as many creators on TikTok with different experiences than mine. So black, indigenous, anybody with a different gender expression than me, as many of those as I possibly can. Several black and brown creators that I follow have made a case that culturally we see as a country, and make no mistake, it's not only the U.S., but any country that was created through slave-owning colonization especially, that we see nothing but black and brown pain shown to us. So these creators suggested not dismissing pain, but appreciating and just noticing. It's such a small ask. It's such a small bar. Just notice and appreciate joy, black and brown joy. Something that I spent 2021 making a deliberate effort to do, and it has released endorphins 
and enriched my understanding, my outlook, and my sense of the world, and quite frankly, my hope in the world. Which in turn shows me, to go back to that group brain exercise, colors I have not been paying attention to and could not see, and therefore may have even denied the existence of, are now things that I can appreciate and have made my life better in real, physical ways. None of this is one year's work. All interactions hold a potential for misunderstanding. And for big gaps, like we've been pretty stupid about corporate power and the environment, those are big gaps. Those are not stories that can be dismissed in any way. But when I look back 40, 30, 20 years, we've been pretty stupid about those all along in that time. What has changed, dramatically changed, is that we are getting better at connecting with each other. For a while, there was a whole cultural sadness that revolved around a perceived loss of people getting less community, not building community through things like bowling together. And that was actually the name of a book or even going to church because people don't do that as much anymore. But these stories did not recognize that churches have no one to blame but themselves. And that happy and quite large groups of people get together for Dungeons and Dragons or to run together or to walk the dog together or, I don't know, go and join the annual Christmas tuba gathering in Boston. There are fewer barriers to entry. And without nearly as much fanfare, the Bowling Alone author wrote a follow-up some years later saying, we weren't bowling alone at all. Our interests had shifted from bowling to other connecting connective pursuits. If you are feeling like the world is a terrible place, that is a localized feeling, and it is just that, a feeling. And you may have excellent reasons. I'm sure you do. Everyone is doing their best. If you feel like the world is an awful place, you have excellent reasons for feeling that way. But spending a lot of time feeling that way does not improve the world. And it takes those nibbles out of you in such a way that it is more and more difficult for you to work to improve the world. And I know there is a privileged piece to this. I know that a, a lot of the backlash is, well, of course, that's easy to say, and it is when neither I nor my family are, for example, suffering through imprisonment or unfair disadvantages in jobs or with the criminal justice system. I do not deny that at all. What I want to encourage people to do is understand when they are getting a certain sense of control, a certain sense of comfort, when we all are, because I do this too, from scratching at an open wound. It's not 
letting the wound heal, it's not helping. It is the result of personal or generational trauma to feel comfort doing that, to feel a sense of control doing that. If you are at all able to access mental health care, this is the time to do that. And mostly it's to realize that a lot of people like to argue for the right to stay in that place. You have the right to stay in that place. Go ahead. But there are other directions. And I don't want to see people nibbling away at themselves. I spent decades doing it myself. It's not that I don't understand it in many ways, although I can't understand every single person's personal background as a general thing. I absolutely understand it. I stayed in that place for decades, again, due to both generational and personal trauma. And what I didn't realize at all was how much that harmed me. Not every person who is overweight is shoveling in buckets of french fries, KFC, and donuts. But if you have been alerted to a health problem, shoveling in buckets of french fries, KFC, and donuts is not going to make your lot better. It is going to materially and physically make it worse. And I don't think that it is a privileged place to say, hey, those are red flags for you to yourself. I ignored my red flags for years, and my life was improved when I stopped ignoring them. When I started hearing the inner voice saying, these are things I need you to pay attention to. And I don't agree that that inherently is a privileged position because everyone who wants to help others has a chance to help others. You're less able to connect and help if you only look for those narrow, focused things. There's an exercise by an author, and I'm hesitating a little because it is such a strange sort of thing. There's an author named Byron Katie, and she is someone who had a lot of personal issues, hit rock bottom, had this epiphany, and then shared it with people. And here's where we get to that piece where it is very easy to come at this with the narrow focused one color and say, sure, everyone wants to make a buck. My own personal feeling about that is, of course they do. Everyone has the right to make enough money to live okay where they are. I can't possibly fathom being mad at that as long as you are not doing something that harms other people in some way. So this woman went out and she had she has a couple of things to ask yourself when you are in stuck, when you are in a funk, when you are feeling negatively towards something. And they have legitimate answers, the ones you hear from yourself. And in my case, and in many people's case, finally hear from yourself. Because I, after many, 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 many decades of being trained to be accommodating and compliant and people-pleasing, I'm very good at talking my inner self out of its position and out of how it feels and then nibbling on myself some more. So Byron Katie has these couple of questions to ask yourself in a situation where you feel badly about something. 
Is this true? Because again, our brains are narrative machines. And hilariously, our brain is the only organ that makes up stories about itself. It's incredibly cool, but also does not give us much in the way of good perspective. So just to stop and ask yourself, is this true? The second question, is it really true? And it's very funny how sometimes that second one is the one that lets you sort of stop like a needle scratch and go, I'm not sure. I may be assuming the worst of somebody else and I have no reason to or right to. There may be something else going on. I may have to leave this situation entirely. Anyway, that really lets you do a second look. Is it, are you sure? Are you absolutely positive that it's true? How do I feel about this if it's true? How would I feel about this if it wasn't true? Now, all of that can give you some insight into a moment's distress, a moment's negativity, a moment where you are in some way psychologically nibbling on yourself, taking bites out of your own self. There are several other questions that go on after that, which are really more for a time of reflection. And I say that because none of this kind of thought process, none of these tools are able to kick in if you haven't slept, haven't eaten, and haven't had something like healthy to drink. But on reflection about this, you can flip around the situation. For example, if you feel like you are not understood the second level is to ask yourself, how well do I understand myself? One of the things we do, especially those of us who are raised to be people pleasers or raised to be compliant, the damage we do ourselves is wanting more than anything for someone else to see our point of view or to acknowledge in some ways that we're right. So a fundamental lack of understanding about ourselves we may have is that we can't do that. And we have to learn to let go of that. We can't make someone else who comes to this table with their own long damage. We can't make them see our... We can't make them better. And ironically, when we stop trying to control them, when we stop trying to negative the situation into positive, which we cannot do, when we start to say, wait, I'm not understanding myself. If I was really understanding myself, I would stand up in the middle of this conversation and say, don't talk to me this way. Or I would stand up in the middle of this conversation and say, you're derailing what we're talking about. If you want to talk about your pain, you bring up that conversation. That's a really good example of the kind of thing, kind of tools I never had until very recently. I didn't know because I was so heavily trained to be compliant and a people pleaser. I had no way of commanding or, or even participating in a conversation where someone would derail it and start talking about how, well, you're not perfect. And then I would immediately without knowing it, without being at all conscious of this, switch around to defending myself against that, to now having that conversation. But the fact is, when I bring up a conversation, when I bring up a topic, or when I respond to 
something by saying, oh, I don't like the way this goes at all. If the other person starts saying, well, you do things that bother me, I did not have the tools until shockingly recently to even notice that. And having noticed it, I didn't know how to do anything but feel bad and complain. And I did not have the tools or the capacity to say, I started this conversation. The topic is the ways in which these things are unacceptable. If I do things that are unacceptable to you, you feel free to start that conversation on your own time. You can bring that to me. I'm even happy to write it down and say we'll do it at 4.30 on Thursday. But this conversation right now is about this thing, which is uncomfortable for the other person, and I can't control that other person. I cannot control them by mollifying them. I cannot control them or change their minds by doing anything but behaving differently myself and saying, I will hang up when we get into this kind of conversation. I will tell you that this is unacceptable. I will leave. I will do these things. You can do what you need to want to do. I will not participate in them any further. When you protect that piece of yourself, when you notice, notice what limitations you're doing, ask yourself some questions about it, you are now able to be in a space where you can help those around you. Not only that, you demonstrate your own internal integrity and are far less of a target for people who would pull you apart or who enjoy controlling you or enjoy your distress at these compliance situations. When you get to this point, you're able to build way more stronger connections with people who actually like you, with people who actually respect you. And that kind of a virtuous cycle gets better and better and better for you. You find yourself physically healthier because you're not constantly drenching your brain in sad chemicals. There are fewer barriers to entry. Most of these tools I've learned from other people in the last several years. Tons of them I have learned on TikTok in the last year. I got on TikTok partway, I guess actually just, just barely into, just barely before 2020. And there's no barriers to entry. There's no barriers to experiencing those connections, tiny though they are. So go ahead, go into an app like that. Enjoy people dancing. Give them words of encouragement. Notice those in distress and ask yourself if you contribute to it or if you're triggered into defensiveness, especially by looking out for people who do not share your background. Mute the voices of those who want to drain you of energy. You don't have to make everybody agree with you. You do not have that control. I find some parts of social media lend themselves to that more than others. But, and, and there is something to be said about engaging people you can safely engage and asking them their stories 
but be aware of those that are causing you self-damage. All over the world though, even those people, even those people who are draining you of energy, people are doing their best. Look at how much of our considerable imaginative power has gone into connecting with one another. As humans, sure, we can make a good argument that we are the problem, but then, of course, we are also the answer. Next up, the second half of my conversation with Ozzy Golshan, a public defender in Georgia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing community, career, and creativity. So how have you found, how have you found a community? Um, I have several different communities. So, so part of the thing is that I live 43 miles from where I work. Mm. And so it kind of depends on where you're talking about, you know, obviously the, you know, where I work is, is through my job as a public defender. I have really gotten to know the community very well. It is funny. I always joke that I can't walk down the street in the community that I work in without having somebody scream out of a car, you know, hey, Miss Golshan, I'm doing really good now. <laughs> oh, God, what a great way to get updated. It is, I mean, it's also such a great contrast to all the time in various cities that in my early to mid 20s where screaming out of a car was like hey baby and you know you you flick them off or you know respond with some expletive whereas now I joke that you know on the wall of the jail is written for a good defense call and it has my you know, when you're in, in a community that it's, it's a small city, basically, it is not a tiny place, but it's not as large as Atlanta or Boston or anything like that. So, I mean, that is just, you get to know people, you get to know families, you go to people's houses to do investigation. And if you're me, you start loving on their pit bulls (laughs) for about 20 minutes before you actually get into the meat of whatever interview you're doing. I don't know. It just, I I don't really know what it is about being in a semi-rural sort of exurb community in the South that works for me, because goodness knows I am so different than the prevailing cultures of that area, but it mm. just really works. So that's, I mean, that's one thing. And then up up here in the city, out, outside of work, the thing that I really enjoy doing as a hobby is dancing. I've been on and off doing um, jazz dance since I was a child. And so there is also a whole level of dance studio, fitness studio kind of community that I've found just having, 
I got back into that in 2014 when we bought a house in the city. We used to live a little bit outside of the city. And so it is funny how that is its own particular kind of community. It's not one where I talk about work. It's not one mm-hmm. where I talk about family. It's one where you more have a community just by being in the same space and creating this sort of environment where you're doing dance. There's that. And then there's also, you know, my my husband's family. So he's originally from Michigan, but his his family when he was in high school moved down to the Atlanta area because his dad got transferred from AT&T. And so he actually has, and then he's got a cousin and the cousin's wife who ended up coming down a little bit later as well. And those have actually, their kids have turned out to be the nieces and nephew that like I've, particularly the nieces that I've gotten really close to. Mm. And so it is just all of these things that over time, as you do things, fall into place. And then also my, I've been living in the same house since I think we, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. 2014 is when we moved in to the same house. And, and my neighbors, I live on this little dead end street, um, this one block. And I just, I love my neighbors. I have wonderful Aww. neighbors. And so, I mean, on the, when the 2020 presidential election was called, like, Five days after election day, I was banging on my neighbor's doors with a bottle of sparkling wine and going, hey, Betty, we're using your porch because it's the largest one and we've got to be outside because COVID. Everybody, bang, bang, bang. How are you not awake? Come on, let's go, let's go. So it's it's that kind of thing. So it's just all of these little things. I don't have one cohesive it's it's kind of a conglomeration of different aspects of my life and have you gotten involved in politics oh gosh I have a little bit and I need to I mean over the years you know I've done some canvassing and things like that I donate money all of that stuff I need to get involved this so 2022 big year in Georgia, lots of momentum on the ground. Um, and even before Stacey Abrams, who I'm very excited about, made mm. it official, my state rep is actually B. Wynn, who she's been on some news shows and stuff during during the whole, you know, spree of shootings of Asian American women, mm. um, because I believe B is the first Vietnamese American state rep, I believe, or Vietnamese American woman in Georgia. And she actually announced fairly early on that she's running for secretary of state in 2022. And they've, yeah. And they've since put together this amazing slate. So, I mean, you've got Stacey Abrams, you've got another strong woman running for Lieutenant, for Lieutenant governor. You've got Jen Jordan, who's this very smart attorney running for attorney general. And then you've got B. Wynn as secretary of state. It's just an incredible slate. And Mm. I actually, just as much, if not more, as in the Abram camp, Abrams campaign kind of door knocking stuff is I will probably also get as or more involved in B Wins campaign because I think part of the focus is also trying to get people to not just stop at the governor's vote, but right. to also vote down ballot. Right. Right. Would you be interested in going on at least down ballot? Oh God, no. no uh like no like committee. running? No school committee, no. No, no, no. 
I, you know, Jenna, the reason that I can't, I, I used to think that, you know, I might be interested in running for office. I think now I've come to the conclusion of, I would really like to, you know, maybe work with elected officials as far as policy writing, that kind of stuff, particularly Mm. having spent so much time in the trenches and going, I have a real good sense of which laws really need to be changed as quickly as possible. But I, I just do not personality wise have the patience to be a politician because I really have a hard time not just saying exactly what I think about everything and everyone. And that is not a good characteristic for a politician. You know, I'm not going to make this about me, but I do. I had the exact echo when I very seriously, I had done three years of study and I really seriously considered becoming a sign language interpreter. Mm -hmm. But the ethics of being a sign language interpreter is that you are not there, mm-hmm. which means that if you, and, and I remember this getting brought home in a, in a series of uh, workshops we did. So we were practicing and, you know, the doctor was like giving bad information oh. and, and like bigoted information and we oh, had no. to translate it or the patient thinks she's pregnant but then tells the doctor she's not or the you know this other person is being abusive and you have to sign it and I was like oh I don't have I don't have whatever it is that would let me do this ethically I would jump in and go no yes (laughs) I thought oh no that is not that is a that was an eye-opening thing about myself (laughs) yeah 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 and I used to think well you know it's worth it and and there is no doubt in my mind I mean I respect the heck out of somebody like Kamala Harris who obviously I don't agree with every decision that every single person makes but I I mean that is I have so much respect for that for that ability to and the willingness to you know, do what you need to do to take hold of power in various settings, whether it was as a prosecutor for her, state attorney general, vice president now, senator, you know, and and do the things that need doing so right. that you change things. It is so important. I just, you know, there is always the balancing act uh, for any one of us of, you know, what what do we do to fight and help and all of that stuff, but then also... Like we also deserve to have lives and be happy. Yeah. And, you know, because you don't want to be a situation where a friend of mine calls a a husk, you know, the husk of the corn with nothing inside, like all dried up. Right. And I'm just not, I'm not willing to do it, but it is, it is such a worthy thing to right. do. And I, I will back people a hundred percent of the time, particularly at very local levels who take that kind of thing on. But I just... I just don't, I don't think I want to do it. I think my bluntness is and being really (laughs) honest about everything and things that I thought would be a huge liability as a public defender, you know, where I, I I can't pretend to my clients that this system makes sense. No, I mean, they're, they, those are the things that have helped me, but I don't think that those would be helpful things in a world where you are trying to you know shake hands and kiss babies build coalition although i do have to say of all the people i've ever met you are the closest in uh 
at least personality to me or perception to me to AOC. So <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is such a compliment. My family apparently has felt that for a long time <laughs> and apparently thought that I would be annoyed or something if they said that to me. And I think I finally, I think it was inauguration day. I, I went like full AOC. Um, <laughs> I had I had on like red lipstick, which I, I never wear lipstick and like, you know, and I wear hoop earrings all the time. So I had hoop earrings on, but I had my hair in the little like Southern California, like poof front, which I know is also an LA poof front. And I, I think it was, they saw me on like a video call on that day. Cause I was doing a virtual training. So it was all on video and they, and I was like, well, I went full AOC and they all were like, oh my God, yeah. we're to tell you, we think you're just like her. I'm like, oh, well, thanks for that. That's well, very nice. The, blunt, the bluntness thing too. That's one of the things I admire about her is that she's one of the few I feel like really just claps back and says, no, this is actually, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kiss babies on this one or rather I'll kiss babies that are under the age of two, but not 57 year old men who want to be right. babies. <laughs> right. There's, there's that. There, there's that. So you would, you would get this, Janet. Do you, have you read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf? Oh, so long ago. Uh, okay. I don't remember much about it. There's just this scene where like the kind of feminist heroine of the novel at the end is like navigating this interaction with like the old, old dude and, and, you know, they care about each other, but also she's trying very hard to also maintain, you know, her own sensibilities and all of this and not do the, you know, kissing a 57 year old babies thing. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment where um, she's like, he's oozing sympathy. He wants sympathy. He wants, you know, all this stuff that his wife who's deceased would want to give him. And instead she, she says, oh, what splendid shoes. And she's like, I can't believe I complimented his boots. What did I do? But, but it works. But it works. He starts talking about his boots and, you know, their workmanship and whatever. And it's just That's like, you've got to find ways to, to compliment the boots. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you know, one of the things you reminded me of is a conversation, just in terms of like, when you were talking about Kamala Harris and, not loving everything that she does, but wanting to work for better. It, it always reminds me of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. And mm -hmm. it's funny, I had, I had an outright argument with a classmate about this once a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. How many women do you think should be on the Supreme Court? How about none? <laughs> and they were like, well, so it's just all about retaliation. And I was like, there were nine on it for like 200 and significant numbers of years. Mm-hmm. I don't know that having nine on it for a couple decades is that is like where's your line on retaliation? <laughs> and then and then my daughter Susanna said it once really well when we saw that female Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. she said, yeah, it wasn't any good, but wouldn't it be great to have a life where like it was? We had so many of these that some of them could suck because we have yeah. so many of these yes. <laughs> made by sort of the dominant the dominant paradigm that suck. And then everything that's done in a reaction to it must be, you know, the most perfect thing ever created. And, and mm. uh, yeah, just not given enough enough leeway to suck at something. Mm. Not given enough leeway to say, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with Harris on fairly substantial things, but I still think she's fine in that role. And I think she's better than considerable numbers 
of mediocre white men that have had that role. Yeah. <laughs> What's the yeah. baseline, man? <laughs> no. no, I mean, and I, I have gotten into arguments with friends about this kind of thing as well um, with Kamala Harris or, or people like her where I'm like, look, like, I understand what you're saying here. And, you know, I, I, and it's not a secret that I am not a political purist, that I I have my beliefs, but I am very much a half a loaf is better than none person. And what I, what I say is if you can reject half a loaf, it's because you're not starving. And so I'm like, I want something. But that's, but that's the truth. I mean, you know, for example, this infrastructure bill, whatever i at the end of the day what it came down to to for me was this entire bill is worth everything that went into it and was taken out of it just for the fact that it's going to fix the issue of poor children drinking out of lead pipe like i don't care you know if it's not perfect right and i get into this argument also because i mean you know i I do work outside the city. And so um, it is less, it's certainly not an entirely white, white area, but you know, there are more of my colleagues and friends in that area who are white and who, you know, have these strong progressive values. And I'm like, I do too, but I don't know how to explain that it is so much harder. Like when you are starting as a person of color and then let alone as a woman of color Mm. in something and just the stuff that kind of like what you're saying about the Ghostbusters movie, the instant like aggression criticism you get for every little thing that would just not be a big deal if you were a white man, a male, a even a white woman in a different way. I mean, just... You cannot, I mean, there is a reason that Bernie Sanders gets to be Bernie Sanders and and look at him, you know, and AOC is awesome. I don't always agree with everything that she does either because she is very much not a half a loaf person. Um, And so I do disagree with that, but I am so glad that she and people like her are able to be in there. But I do have to point out AOC represents a congressional district in New York City. I mean, that is not only is that is she representative of, you know, how diverse where it is that she is, is like, but also it is an extremely liberal area. And so her fear of being like, like the retaliation on her versus, you know, a white male, it's, it's going to be a little bit different because her voters have a lot of those progressive values to begin yeah. with. There is yeah, someone like Kamala. Who's rep- who was representing an entire state and now is governing an entire nation. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it's much like Barack Obama. Like, I mean, just going after that person for every little thing, like you can take fewer risks, especially if you know that in the end, you are not going to be able to get what you're advocating for if you go that far out. Yeah. You just have to be that much more pragmatic. And I, I get that and I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, that's the, like, that's just so much of the basis behind all of what they do. I, yeah. I mean, you got to kind of, I don't know, 
you're right about the pragmatism. You got to be like, well, look, get anything in, you get done, get nothing done. I am frustrated in general with the democratic machinery. Oh, sure. But that's we could have a whole that's show. A, that's, that. a bigger, that's a bigger. Yeah, thing. you're like, guys, what are you doing? You yes. have the majority in both. How? How yes. are you not? You have a suit. You have a majority in like two branches of government. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah, PS run by affluent white people. So maybe if they were to like knock it off, that'd be great. I don't even I couldn't even tell you exactly what's happening in there right now except that I will say I I also respect the heck out of Nancy Pelosi because she delivers those votes and then it's just the Senate we're like what is happening with the Senate what's going on but yeah so yeah but I guess that that answers the question about about whether you'd ever be interested in in running for office I, I think about it sometimes about like just little local office sure you know yeah, I feel like it, it's funny. Somebody not too long ago took a screenshot of it was probably something stupid like the New York Times say, quoting someone saying, "Well, you know, the millennium millennial vote is just you know we're going to end up with millennial candidates or something." And someone was like, "That is how, how terrible." Also, that is how the passage of time happens, <laughs> and that was the part that made me like just right. fall over laughing, like. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, like, number one, like, the boomers have had such a fantastic legacy. Come on. But also, I'm sorry, but millennials, I mean, it's funny how people use this phrase millennials as right? a catch-all for younger people. Yeah. I'm like, I think the youngest millennials are like 25, 26, 27 years old now. At, at, at most, I think they're in their 30s. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I am so I'm 39 and I am at the older end of the millennials because I because I think millennials are 81 through oh, I don't okay. know, 96 or something. Yeah. But but all to say that when they're talking about, you know, college students and whatever, I'm like, OK, first of all, you're still being ridiculous because, you know, at the moment at which you start criticizing an entire younger generation, I feel like it's also the moment where you start complaining that their music is just noise too. Yeah. Just like you've, you've gotten old, but, but also like that's a whole different generation. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I know. I, I've, I've waded into those waters before because I always ask the question, who raised them? Right. Who, who gave them, <laughs> who gave them those participation trophies? You and I didn't get them because our parents didn't make the coaches give them. Who right. made the parents like the call is coming from inside the house, you guys. But also, as someone who grew up in the era of participation, we didn't have trophies, but like little paper certificates. You all knew that that was total BS. You're like, oh, it's a participation award. Yeah. Man, why do I have this? But this a, seven, isn't... a seven-year-old doesn't go to the coach and make that happen. No. A 35-year-old goes to the coach and insists that their child be given participation trophies only to turn around 14 years later and say, all of you want participation. Yeah, well, you know, uh, millennials are the children's boomers, just saying. I know, I know. And I also love the kids these days thing because I, somewhere I have the, um, I have it in Latin from like, Cicero or somebody like exactly oh, hilarious yeah. like yeah. this is how long this has been happening yeah. stop it literally <laughs> everybody does this when they're old so thanks for <laughs> thanks for telling on yourself <laughs> yep getting the kids off your lawn so, right. so I want to ask you what yes. what would you tell your younger self 
do things oh, if you met them? My younger self or someone who is that age now? Your younger self. Oh, good grief. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm a very anxious person. I, I come by that through wonderful family inheritance. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, I think just in my very early 20s, I think I was in that mode that a lot of folks in their early 20s are in where you are so desperately trying to figure out what you're going to do in the future because you just have no idea. Yeah. And I guess what I might say is something along the lines of it's okay to not know. It's okay to just be doing something right now while you live and like gain life experience and just start slowly thinking through things. Just do something, yeah. you know, um, it, it's okay if it ends up not being anything that it's what you want to pursue in the long run. Because that's what stressed me out. Yeah. Just trying to, you know, coming out of college and then realizing like, grad school, job, where to live. Like, it's just all blank slates. And it's like, well, you'll fill it eventually. It's okay. I mean, this is actually, I'm not going to go so far as to say, it's so wonderful that you have no idea what you're doing. Cause I remember how panic inducing yeah. all of that was, Yeah, but just like, just do one thing at a time. Just do anything right at this moment. It's okay. Mm. Mm. And then another question I'd like to ask is, if you had a million dollars tomorrow, what would you do? Oh, my God. Um, I have no idea. I would, I, I truly have no idea. Are you one of the people that would, like, quit their job and go on a world Not necessarily. Like, I okay. would, uh, so this, this shows I'm like, oh, God, I'm such a, I'm almost, uh, I'm so about to turn 40 next year. I'm like, well, I guess what I would do is pay off my mortgage. <laughs> but then what do you do with the rest of it? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't quit my job. I might do something. I mean, I might do something where I'm doing the same thing, but have fewer cases and it's mm. it's not as completely insane, but maybe not. I, I really don't know. Yeah. I don't think I would want to change my day-to-day -day lifestyle, I guess. Mm. And I would want to do something with that money or some chunk of that money that would, I guess, be in some way helping, whether it's the client base that I work with now or a different group of people or something. I don't know. Yeah. I have strong feelings about, you know, any, because I, I do have more, even though, you know, my teacher husband and I as our, you know, public servants are not, you know, wildly wealthy people we both have more than either of us did growing up. And so I do mm. feel really strongly that with every bit you get more, you need to be contributing something, whether it's money or time or both. Right. You helping, you know, helping pull people along with you, I guess. Mm. But so I all to say something in that nature, but I, couldn't even tell you, Janet. That's Couldn't all right. That just curious. It's it's uh it's it's pretty neat. So it would go, it would go to the house, and then it would go to charity. <laughs> I, it would go to it would be like like I might found my. I mean, not in just a lump sum here. I think it's I might found like a 
okay, now I'm doing like wraparound legal advocacy in all these different ways, but I can be self-funded doing it instead of having mm, to. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, service then. Charity's the wrong word. but Yeah, yeah. Cha- yeah, charity's also a word that kind of makes me want to barf a little, but oh. yeah. That, <laughs> well, because it's such a hoity-toity. You're like, no, you're not charity. It's you are being a decent human being. And if you have enough to give, then like, you are just, I don't know, carrying your weight a slight bit. Mm. Like, just so anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, not a yacht. I think that's the the, <laughs> the base answer. Yeah. <laughs> One a million dollars, you would not a yacht. No, not a yacht. Your super yacht. <laughs> no, no, definitely not a yacht. I won't be sailing by John Kerry anytime soon. <laughs> and what's something that you want to like get to in the next couple years? Um, like what, I guess, what do you mean? Like get to as in aspirationally, like, you know, do you want to learn Korean? Do you want to choreograph something? So you were talking about the dance. Do you want to, what, what kinds of, what kinds of things do you sort of have on the list that you want to get to in the next couple of years? I think I want to get more, not necessarily involved in like an advocacy way, but just more like I I want to be a little bit more present slash like kind of getting more knowledgeable about the intricacies of some of the stuff. And and some of this is going to depend on what elections look like here on a statewide level, Mm -hmm. because I was going to say whether it is local city of Atlanta governance, um, things like that. What happens at those city council meetings? Who are the people other than the council people that are involved in all of this stuff? What does that look like? Um, or kind of at the state level of, you know, is there policy stuff, like I said before, that I can, that I can help with? Is there any inroad into how can we change and improve some of these laws so that they are not so punitive on just just a couple particular segments of the population. Mm. But I'm not, I mean, it's it's really for me been, I do the public defendering and then I, if, you know, I try my best at least to shut it off, go home, do fun things. And I'm like, I just, but with that being in a different community, I'm like, I just need to be a little bit more involved slash knowledgeable in some of the local slash state stuff that where I am not just an advocate but also like I am also a civilian in this Mm, mm. yeah yeah so more of those sort of I just read a book called the power of sharing power Mm -hmm. by Benjamin something would be uh and he was one of he was Obama's fundraiser that was doing like the tiny amounts Mm -hmm. oh yeah 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 that's brilliant yeah and one of the things he was saying is you know that's the role he like finds so deeply satisfying so Mm -hmm. not and it was interesting to think of it almost an administrative role for Mm -hmm. to sort of enable better politics that I hadn't really thought about before I hadn't really thought about the that kind of support system of uh of people that exist to sort of I don't know, support good people yeah. from the from the sides and the Yeah. Yeah. But that you don't have to be front and center. Like you don't have to be the person who's front and center. Like the politician can do that. But like 
what are you actually trying to change? Because obviously, yeah, like you said, there's, there's gotta be a whole team of people, whether it's partisan or not, you know, depending on your context, working behind the scenes to try to do good things. Yeah. Yeah. And make things better. Yeah. Ozzy, this has been such a delight to talk to you. I'm so glad you came on the show today. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm uh, I'm glad it turned out okay for you. I don't think <laughs> I've ever been well. I don't think I've ever been interviewed for something like this before. So it's a, I'm not sure if I'm talking about what you want me to, to be talking about. Oh, but if you no, are, no, no. If it, if it was about that, then I would have like done a deep dive and had a bunch of questions. I'd just like to see. Here's here's the genesis of this. I'm doing it in reverse. I, I sometimes talk about the genesis at the beginning, but the genesis mm-hmm. of it was all these interesting people out there that when you hear what they do, you stop. Mm-hmm. You make a ton of assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. So lawyer, oh, okay. Money comes from money. Then you get public defender. Oh, okay. So you know, kind of ended up there. It's oh, sort of geez. a, you know, or, oh, or, or is such funny. a bleeding heart do-gooder. You know, you kind of stop there and you're like, and I kept meeting, you know, kept talking to people and finding out, you know, not only what they did, but what they liked to do, but also what mm-hmm. they liked about what they did. And yeah. I, those are kinds of perspectives that I really feel like I should have been hearing my whole life and haven't. So that's really what this, that's really what the discussion is. And by that metric, you have succeeded and excelled. Oh, gold star. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. (laughs) I'd like to thank Ozzy for joining me today. If you want to hear the first half of our talk, go to working9to thrive.com, that's with the number nine, and follow us on social media.